You know, all of us as travelers and explorers have a responsibility to not overrun the planet every single square inch. So there are places that you may find yourself, but then you have to look yourself in the mirror and just say, maybe I shouldn't tell the rest of the world about this place. Not because you want to selfishly hoard it yourself, but you want, you realize the impact of telling the story. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Rome from Home podcast. This is the podcast where we interview some of the world's most interesting, knowledgeable, and iconic explorers, athletes, scientists, and experts from the world of outdoor adventure and how they live lives of purpose. Purpose meaning how they cultivate their relationship with their environment, the earth, how they cultivate the community with others, and how they ultimately find inspiration and fulfillment in themselves. This is season two of the Rome from Home podcast, and we have some really exciting news. Adventure Activists has come on for this season to support us for the next 12 episodes with a very clear vision and a lineup that will be designed to promote action and ignite change for the better. And in particular, this season, we are with the founder of Adventure Activists, our co-host, Dr. Terry O'Connor. And with his help, we're going to be looking carefully at this concept of effective altruism and who is really doing the work that is leading to better outcomes in some of these causes. So we really want to provide you, dear listener, with the tools and resources to get out, get up off the couch, stand up and take a stance on social and environmental issues that are hindering our world from becoming a more just and beautiful place. Terry, He's a medical doctor and an ER doc. Terry was a climber and an adventurer, and that inspired him to get into medicine. And his work as an ER doc has inspired his work to be and to become the founder of Venture Activists, which is focused on the SDD goals of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And so with that, what's up, Terry? Hey, everybody. Terry here. Yeah, CJ. Uh, You know, I think we've joined forces here because we believe that those who are privileged to expand their horizons as travelers and explorers really do bear intimate witness to the threats to our world and are really uniquely positioned and motivated to serve in return. So we really want this season to be an educational space uh, for our listeners, which presents the foundational knowledge and tools for making positive change. And we want to share our network of subject matter experts in really diverse areas of expertise, including health, education, philanthropy, peace, justice, conservation, climate, and more. We're excited to have you, Terry, and to to team up with Adventure Activists and you. Just amazing opportunity for us to really dive into some of this. And you and I are learning about this as we go. You're teaching me. Some of our guests are teaching us collectively. Uh, And in speaking of our other co-host, Corey Richards, who was my co-host throughout the entire first season, the first 24 episodes, he will also be joining us for a lot of these episodes. He's sort of in and out, depending on if he's in the Himalaya, if he's training, he has a busy life as a photographer, working photographer and athlete. And he brings an awesome perspective as someone who's also trying to figure this stuff out. I mean, you feel that in some of the episodes, Terry, you've noted that Corey's curiosity on this, I think is going to be really helpful for the audience. Oh, absolutely. He's had some great reflections uh, so far, but I really do enjoy learning from our guests and their process and figuring out how they want to best serve and give back uh, to the world. And uh, I'm, I'm really curious uh, who we got up next. 
Today, we've got a very special episode for a couple of reasons. The first is our guest is Chris Rainier, National Geographic photographer, adventurer, explorer. This is an incredible episode with some just mind-blowing stories. I mean, just to give you a little teaser, Chris was the last assistant to Ansel Adams. So we get some of that. Like We hear about what it was like to actually work with Ansel Adams. The reason we're having this conversation with Chris is his relationship with our COO, Andy Patrick, who in his own right is an amazing person and is so much a, a part of what we do here at Rome. He's going to be running this episode as the co-host with Dr. Terry O'Connor. Yeah, it's just super cool that we have uh, Andy to come in and help co-host on this one, especially given his long-standing friendship and relationship with uh, the amazing Chris Rainier. I mean, Chris is an acclaimed photographer, really known for highlighting endangered cultures and really the preservation efforts to keep and preserve traditional languages in the world. Uh, he's in that he is the co-founder and co-director of the Enduring Voices Project and the director of the All Roads Photography Program, which we're going to hear so much about in this episode. These are two organizations that are designed to support indigenous groups who are working to document their cultures and really in so uh, can help us create sustainable solutions to help preserve our planet. And the connection between those two is something that we, we riff on quite a bit in this episode, and it's really quite insightful and inspiring. Uh, he's the director of the Cultural Sanctuaries Foundation, um, whose mission is to create really legally protected cultural zones around the globe that protect both traditional knowledge and biodiversity in uh, so many areas around the world, which he'll reference in the episode. We, we go and travel into Papua New Guinea. Uh, we go into the mountainous terrains of Bhutan. Uh, but as you said, Man, we, we we talk about some really amazing stories from his roots, uh, such as from the deserts of Sudan as well. With all this adventure, uh, it comes as no surprise that in 2014, he was elected as a fellow of the Royal uh, Geographical Society of London. And uh, really, like with so many of our other interviews and with our other guests, we really like to dig down about... God, how did Chris become who he is today? What motivated him? What got him into doing the work he does? And he's speaking with us today about how he first became aware of the need for cultural preservation, why he thought empowering indigenous groups to tell their own stories was so important. And of course, being a photographer, how he uses photography and technology as a tool for social and environmental good, and what we can really learn uh, from his remarkable career. Uh, such a cool conversation. Again, like so many of the other ones could have gone on for hours. So inspired by this one. Let's get into it. I grew up in, in a family that were explorers. My grandfather uh, was born in uh, Southern Africa, South Africa at the turn of the 20th century. Uh, literally the son of a farmer. At age 17, he put an elephant rifle over his shoulder and ended up walking the length of Africa for five years. He eventually became an adventure writer, wrote numerous, numerous books of his, his adventures. And so I was always inspired by his stories. My 
I can't even remember how many great, great, great grandfathers back. He and uh, Admiral Vancouver were in the Royal Navy and they were doing the cartography of the Northwest Coast. And obviously what happened at those colonial times, they pointed at things and named things after each other. So Mount Rainier is uh, named after a distant uh, grandfather of mine. So I was really, from the day I was born, sort of told these romantic stories. My father was born into the era just before the Second World War, and at age 15, as his father took off and uh, served for the British Army, my father was fearful that he may miss the whole thing, so he forged his father's signature and became a Spitfire pilot over North Africa in the 1940s and the last couple of years of the Second World War. So I grew up to these remarkable stories and my father had a job in the oil industry. So I'm Canadian, I'm still Canadian, but at a very early age, my brother and I were whisked off to Australia and I spent much of my formulative years in Australia. And being a geologist, my father was often uh, stationed out on these isolated oil rigs in the Australian outback. So my earliest memories are, are going into these remarkable indigenous tribal communities, the Aborigines. And then we eventually moved to England and uh, South Africa. And so I spent much of my childhood growing up in a kind of non-traditional way, if you will, uh, surrounded by traditional communities, uh, different ways of looking at the world. And I think that was very crucial for me to understand that, you know, we tend to be very ethnocentric. We think and assume our culture, where we grow up, our country, Canada, United States, is the center of the universe. And I think even more so now, it is so important to tell the stories of other cultures of other ways of being, of other ways of looking at the world um, in a sustainable way, in a traditional way. So that early childhood experience really allowed me to form up a appreciation and a curiosity about what lies beyond the horizon and to, in a way, reserve judgment to explore things that I don't understand, cultures I, I'm curious about. And so that really was the foundation in which I wanted to explore the world. I just needed to evolve and find a, a profession that allowed me to do that. And what was so wonderful is that I eventually stumbled upon photography and it gave me an opportunity to make a living. Uh, my camera to this day for the last 40 years has been uh, the passport that allows me to continue to learn and to educate myself and to explore the world. And I also think to be a medium and a conduit for social good and social change. You know, I'm uh, calling in today from Carpinteria, which is near Santa Barbara, a place that is uh, near and dear to your heart, Chris. I, I know you went to school here for photography, right, at Brooks. And again, another one of those pivotal points uh, happens, I, I think, right after you gra graduate or, or thereabouts. And I, I'm wondering if you could share a little bit of that and the influence that those next five years had on, on you as, as a photographer and what it, what it really taught you about photography. 
Well, indeed, I went to the photography school in Santa Barbara, and I often joke I majored in surfing and minored in photography. How could you <laughs> know Santa Barbara for, for all the, the attributes uh, that you enjoy as well, the wonderful beaches? Near the end of graduating from photography school, I was restless because I had grown up in an environment where art was very, very important. At one point, our family lived in London, England, and you know, I had access to some of the great museums of the world. And my great aunt was a, a music composer. And so I was steeped in the arts and I loved photography and I wanted to combine kind of those two things. And then I had the great honor of taking a workshop from Ansel Adams. He was alive at that point. This would be the late 70s, early 1980s, his famous workshops up in Yosemite. And I took the workshop and everything clicked. I suddenly realized that I could be a photographer, I could be an artist, and yet I could also pursue the social messaging and use photography as a social tool. So a remarkable event happened at the workshop. Ansel and I sat down and we uh, continued to have these remarkable conversations about art, about photography, about the world, and uh, indeed about landscape and conservation. Within a couple of weeks of graduating from uh, college, he asked me to be his photographic assistant. Basically, at that point, I strapped myself in and went on this remarkable five-year journey, which was so much more than getting a PhD in film and chemicals and the zone system, but it was really about learning how to use photography as a social tool. It was about incorporating art into your life. I had this great privilege and remarkable window into the world of using photography. And certainly it's uh, quite uh, well known that Ansel's work and his advocacy helped uh, preserve and maintain and save some of the great national parks of America. And at that point, Ronald Reagan was in office James Watt was the Secretary of Interior, and he was systematically beginning to open many of the national parks and, and BLM land to mining and, and things like that. So uh, I was sort of in real time watching how you could be an advocate for landscape and conservation. And that really profoundly set my compass and the direction of where I wanted to go in my career. Now, it was the combination of my background, which was very focused on traditional cultures and, and indigenous people around the world, my love of landscape that came together when I was working for Ansel Adams. And that really sort of aligned me that after I finished working with Ansel, he passed away in 1984. I stayed on a year to, to help finish a number of book projects, his autobiography, and his archive, which is now at the Center of Creative Photography. And then after that was over, I really kind of set my goal on navigating that space where I wanted a life of adventure. I wanted to explore the four corners of the human experience. I wanted to go deep into the darkness of the human conflict. So I eventually became a, a war correspondent photographer for first the United Nations and then Time magazine. 
but I also wanted to celebrate in life, celebrate in nature, and and really to this day, love going and exploring those still untouched places, if you will. And of course, we all know those are very rare and, and need to be highly respected, but there still are places on this planet in the 21st century where there are people still with one foot in the Garden of Eden, living under the canopy of the forest, that are living in ways that we we have begun to truly disconnect from and forget about. And so part of the role that I see in, in my photography is to document, archive, and help empower those indigenous cultures. So that really began to be articulated when I worked for Ansel in the early 1980s. Oh, Chris, it's a, a lot to unpack there. You basically have kind of laid out the outline, an abstract of our conversation to come here. But uh, uh, there's a there's a few things I certainly want to hit on. One is, and I think we'll get to later, is, is kind of the role of photography, both for delight and engagement, and which actually can motivate positive change because it's a positive emotion. It's kind of a high arousal state versus what we often think of with photography and activism in that it demonstrates potentially despair or problems or you know grave catastrophes, which although they can inspire aware, well, they can bring awareness. They may not necessarily inspire activism because the, the problem is too grand and too grave. And that's something we talked about previously with Corey, and I'd love to back and get to that. But one thing I, I'm previously curious about with your history with Ansel, under his tutelage, was it quite explicit in your time with him that he very much wanted to instill with you that photography could be a tool for social activism and, and his experience was an effective tool? Or did you just follow by his lead? You know, just leading, he led by example and you followed suit. I, I think each assistant, and there have been many over his long career, he, he passed away in his early 90s. So I think each of those uh, assistants kind of knew the privilege and knew in a way that one had to carry on the message. So I think I'm a little unique in the sense that I went strongly into the, the social engagement levels. So there was there was an implicit understanding that carry the message on. And certainly I admire a lot of Ansel's uh, former assistants for, you know, they do a lot of consulting for Kodak and a lot of contemporary digital cameras uh, companies. So they've sort of taken themselves off in that direction. And I've gone more into the social change. So I think it was it, it was also the time that I was working for Ansel. I really realized that a lot of the national parks were under threat. And, you know, this is one of the greatest gifts that I think the United States has given the rest of the world, the concept of the national park system. You know, Teddy Roosevelt, and if anybody has seen many of the, the Rick Burns documentaries on the creation of our national parks, it is a great privilege for us to live in a nation, uh, and we still have to battle to preserve those areas and even expand them. And we certainly saw in the last administration how some of them can be taken away so easily. But I think what we do have here in the United States, and speaking as a Canadian in Canada, is a remarkable national park system that has inspired many countries. You know, I'm convinced that Serengeti and Masai Mara and Ngorogoro 
craters in East Africa would not exist if it wasn't for the, the model of the national park system. So yeah, I think uh, there was no question that working with Ansel and kind of digging in under the uh, sort of unpacking some of the things that were going on at that time. You know, Ansel had a, a very famous interview in Playboy magazine and, and sort of said he wanted to drown Ronald Reagan and, and James Watt in his martini. Well, sure enough, when the magazine came out, uh, we got a call from the White House and Reagan wanted to talk to Ansel because he was very concerned about the political pull that Ansel could have against mm. Reagan. So there I was a number of weeks later, sitting sitting in the room at the White House, very quietly off to the side, while Ansel Adams really sort of gave the riot act to, to Reagan. So I began forming a, so many of these ideas of how much power you can have. And I also want to really make a, a really interesting point. If you recall the, the 1960s with the Sierra Club, David Brower was the president, and Ansel and David Brower came up with the concept of beautiful books. You know, uh, again, Lake Powell, The Canyon That No One Knew by Philip Hyde. And Ansel did a number of books and Elliot Porter and Philip Hyde. And so the concept of celebrating nature, not pointing out the doom and gloom, but let's have a celebration. And I think that's especially important in this day and age where so much of the news can really be depressing. It's the celebration of nature. You know, people will not save something unless they love it and they are, they're surrounded by it. So I think that's what's so important with, you know, so many of these documentaries of climbers going up Everest or, or rappelling off canyons in, in the Four Corners area. Let's make it a celebration and a, a celebration of what we do have. The social message can be embedded in there. Many of these Sierra Club books, great authors would write about uh, the dangers of losing these precious places we have. So I think it's a it's a tight tight kind of wire to to navigate where you don't want to be completely whitewashing the seriousness of what's going on, mm -hmm. but you want to start with the celebration. You want to. You, there is so much to celebrate in life. You want to embrace the joy and then inform people of some of the issues that are going on. And this is the success of uh, many of the National Geographic expeditions. Uh, what one comes to mind is uh, I've led a number to Antarctica and people arrive in Antarctica. They know they're going to love it, but they're so blown away by the place. They come back and say, what do we do? Mm -hmm. What do we got to do to save this place? And I think that's the right combination. Yeah. And I think you're, you're really hitting on this idea of celebrating and taking someone into the delight of these spaces as actually a positive influence. And, and you, you highlighted, let me just go back. You literally told us a story where you joined Ansel at the White House and Ansel had audience with the president at that time because he had created this platform celebrating natural spaces. And he had developed this following because of that. I think it, it merits, and I think you're absolutely right, because in these times, it's very easy to fall into the folly of the rest of the doom scrolling of the news and want to call out all the great tragedies that are happening in the world, but it doesn't really engage a positive emotion that makes it easy for people to act in support of your cause. Like when they see a beautiful photo of Antarctica 
and they want to go visit or they want to make sure that it stays preserved in the state that it is, it's actually an easier thing to want to support versus feeling like you're working uphill on an endless battle on unsurmountable odds. And I think that's one really important thing to highlight. It sounds very much from your perspective and expertise is like celebrating positive imagery talking about what we have that deserves preserving is actually quite effective, not just calling out the tragedies of the world. Absolutely. And I think the new the new element is social responsibility and long-term preservation. We're clearly in a very unusual time in the middle of, or hopefully at the end of COVID, where so many of the national parks have been shut down. The numbers are very low, but we are about to see the gates open up. In fact, Venice just last week has come out with a decision of no more cruise ships. So as they begin to open up here in the next couple of months, they are saying enough is enough. We're overwhelmed with tourists. And I think this is the real crucial key here in the next 25 to 50 years and beyond. How do we maintain our national park systems? How do countries that are desperate for tourism, especially again, having been shut down for the last year, year and a half, how do they moderate that? Our foundation has been working a lot in Bhutan and Bhutan is a remarkable country because the king, the former king of Bhutan decided to have low impact, high value. So what that means is they charge a very high visa rate every day to go into Bhutan. So it keeps the masses away and it allows their culture to be sustainable. Now, is that democratic? I don't know, but it is his right to want to ensure that his country maintains its pristine wilderness and also allows for tourism, which is important, and also sustainable tourism. The country that is neighboring it, Nepal, he looked at that and said, you know, they're overrun with tourists. They have a problem. They've also cut down 75% of their natural forest where Bhutan has made a point of preserving by law into the future, 60% of their forest will never be cut down. It is the only country in the world that is kind of carbon negative, so to speak. They are in the right side of the equation. So there's some, all I'm saying is there's some tough, tough decisions that the United States with its national park system and around the world has to make in terms of how do we preserve that wilderness? How do our grandchildren go into the Four Corners area or go to Moab to go hiking and biking and enjoy what we can today? Yeah. And I want to provide a transition here to, to uh, allow Andy to come in with another story he wanted to recount. And I think the tee up for this, it might be in, in just recounting what you've said, uh, like the power of celebration of natural space and how it's actually led to effective activism to preserve natural spaces, not only the United States, but you referenced Bhutan here and how useful that positive messaging can be for engagement in a country and in the population. But uh, one thing that we often talk about in our personal stories, and Corey Richards and myself have riffed on this previously on prior episodes, is the deep kind of transformative moment that can happen personally when faced with kind of an unstable moment, when you're trying to reconcile with something you've borne witness to, which was just so tragic that you have to do something about it. Yes. And uh, that's a much more personal journey 
Andy, I'm going to let you come in here, but I think there's a there's a particular story that Andy recalls uh, in your journey as a as a correspondent and a photojournalist that I think it helps explain some of your journeys going forward here and engaging with people as well. Yeah, Chris, I'm thinking of of Somalia and that incredible inflection point once again of you having this very successful career and being able to be on contract, you know, with the likes of Time and and et cetera, and and kind of travel wherever. Um, if you're comfortable to share that story, I, I think it's it's a poignant one. It's it's a major inflection point in in your life, and I'm also curious as as kind of a follow up to that is how then. When we come upon that decision or, or that experience, do we sit down with ourselves, so to speak, and say, okay, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go in this direction. And, and where did you go? Like, how did you decide? What was the process that you went through to determine some of these decisions that you've made post-Somalia? Thank you. And, and I will share the story as I often do in my lectures, because I, I hope it gives uh, insight to photographers and and people that are storytellers, and we're all storytellers of, at least for me, what was the turning point of the honest turning point. So I had I'd been working in uh, Somalia and take you back to the early 1980s or 90s rather, and this was uh, you know a famine, a serious famine. This was prior to the United States uh, deciding to go in and and help the cause. And I was working with a relief agency and we were driving along the hot desert one day. And I'd been there about close to six months. I was trained as a journalist. If it didn't happen through my lens frame, uh, I wasn't interested. I had honed myself to be a kind of almost killer, if you will, for images. I was, I had to get those images. Objectivity was the key. And so we were driving along one day. I was well honed in terms of almost an intuitive sense when things were about to happen and chance favors the prepared mind. I always had my lens and camera ready. Driving along and shimmering off in the distance was this tin shack. And as we came closer, got my camera ready and I realized there was an old man there and right beside him already wrapped up in the traditional Islamic cloth were these bodies, his wife and several of his other children. And he was holding his last surviving son and he was close to death too. So the doctors got out of the vehicle and I jumped out, had my camera already and I got some photographs of him sort of holding his son. And we put him in the back with me and off to the, the hospital. And the hospital was several hours away uh, and we were racing to get this young boy to the hospital. Anyways, I distinctly remember realizing that the old man was thirsty and was suffering. And so I, and he spoke English and I said, I will hold your son. Let me put my camera down. And I, I realized at that moment, I was no longer the kind of objective machine that there was extension of the film in my camera. I was now a part of the story as opposed to distancing it and objectifying. I put my camera down, took the, the boy into my arms, gave the man my canteen. And sure enough, 10 minutes later, the boy died in my arms. And my whole world exploded because I had successfully survived, if you will, 
this carnage of death of, you know, going into villages at times where 300 people a day, a day were dying and there were 80 grave diggers and only two doctors. And so suddenly that whole narrative in my brain no longer worked. It wasn't good enough. This boy who I had a kind of emotional connection to had just died in my arms. And I realized if I was to be truthful and honest to my audience, I needed to disconnect from the objectivity and become more involved. I needed to roll around in it. I, I had to hate it. I had to make love to it. I had to be a part of it. Still telling my audience the truth, but to be more emotionally involved. And I think that has helped me become hopefully a better storyteller over all of these years because I stepped into it. You know, I want to know when that climber's at the top of Mount Everest or Corey has gone through this remarkable avalanche. I want his emotional story. I want the truth on that level. And I think I demand that of myself and I demand that of other storytellers. And journalism is supposed to be all about objectivity. Well, any journalist that tells me that is not telling the truth because we are thinking emotional biased beings and I want that story. So that really, even into the work that I'm doing now, even into the documentation and empowerment of traditional cultures, and consequently, the workshops I teach in that environment, it's all about tell me the truth. Tell me what you feel. And that's, that's where we get to a real conversation. That's where we get to the essence of why we share these stories and what life is all about. Great. Amazing, Chris. Um, so I, I'm, I'm curious then, after that situation, as, as you were thinking about the projects then that you would take on, you know, that were different from the ones that you had been doing. I, I get these, this question a lot from Rome members where, you know, they're a rock climber and photographer, and they're trying to figure out how to transition into other parts of, of their career so as to make it more sustainable. It's a, and part of what I talk to them comes from conversations that I've had with you, which is, you know, where is your passion? Where, I mean, beyond the rock climbing, what are some of the other things that are really driving you? What's the story that you really want to be telling? And so I'm, I'm curious, you know, for you, whether it's the, the masks uh, work that you've done or the tattoo work that you've done, or, or even the, the programs that you started at Nat Geo, uh, Enduring Voices with Wade and All Roads Photography Program, et cetera. How do you go about making some of these decisions? <laughs> Wonderful question. Well, I always tell students, you know, you've got to find your own bliss. You have to find your own narrative. And of course, when we start, uh, I encourage people to mentor. Um, I obviously had the great privilege of mentoring with one of the, the great photographers, but it doesn't matter who you're mentoring with, but just spend time looking and exploring their voice, their storytelling. And eventually, you know, as you begin to have life experiences, you begin to define who you are, what you want to talk about, and the direction you want to go in. And so for me, that took many, many years. It, it, there was suddenly a moment when I realized I wasn't 
trying to copy Ansel Adams' images in Yosemite. There was something beyond that. And, and I really encourage everybody to take that path. And it may take five, 10 years, but just keep going down that path. Trust yourself. Ansel once said to me, put off short-term gains for long-term goals. And I still wake up every once in a while and go, wow, he was right. You know, 50 years down the road, um, I'm just beginning to get that. And so for me, I'm always driven by photography. I just love the power of storytelling. I'm, I can't sleep at night in the last couple of nights because I'm dreaming of how I'm going to walk into this volcano and, you know, from what angle. So I'm on Google Maps doing the research. I'm following all these blogs. I'm, you know, watching all the YouTubes. It's like, okay, the they walk around there and that's, that looks to be where sunrise and sunset is. So, you know, I just love that aspect, but I think there was a point somewhere in my forties where I began to realize a number of things, but also how lucky I was and how grateful I was for Ansel as a mentor, that it was time to really, for me, begin to step into mentoring others and, you know, my career has been full of documenting traditional cultures. And I went, wait a minute, you know, I'm, I'm working for National Geographic. And traditionally, National Geographic has been all about sending white male guys around the world to tell other people's stories. And I thought, you know, we've shifted. We're now in the 21st century. We now really must to engage the other and so we started a program called All Roads, which Andy, you wonderfully served on our advisory board. And it was all about empowering the people we were photographing to actually take their own photographs and tell their own stories. Because so many of these cultures are based on oral tradition. Much of their information and language and stories are told orally. So they're really good storytellers. They've got that one wired far better than us. So it was a <laughs> just if they wanted, and I stress only where invited, we would go in and bring video cameras, bring cameras, bring audio equipment for them to tell their own stories. And I think this is an exciting thing, not only at National Geographic, but around the world, we're really beginning, I think, through social media and all the wonderful attributes that come with this technology is to begin to truly sit around the virtual fireplace of the internet and tell what it means to be human. And I think we have entered extraordinarily exciting time. You know, I've got a photograph of a a eagle hunter in Mongolia. It's sort of a part of our foundation stationary, if you will. But And it's a great story. We drove in five days way beyond, uh, you know, electricity. And we were up on this hill one afternoon and this rugged, handsome Cossack man with the eagle. And I, what I often like to do is I take my iPad in, take a photograph before I start the photo shoot and share it with them. And they kind of get a rapport going. Well, uh, I took the image and through the translator, he said, oh, I really like that image. And I said, <laughs> well, I'd like to get it to you. What's your address? He just whips out his iPhone. He says, you can just drop <laughs> it over. And, I'll <laughs> and why not? 
are we the only privileged ones that decide who gets technology or not? Of course not. It's a level playing field. And, and what's really interesting is that many traditional cultures, it's not a binary thing. They're not giving up their traditional culture to grab an iPhone or an iPad or whatever. They are using them together. They're combining that to preserve, maintain, amplify their traditional stories, and in fact, connect with other indigenous people. We created this kind of global website that is password sensitive, so it's not for the public, but you know, an indigenous storyteller in South Africa is talking to a shaman in Borneo, who's talking to a Maasai elder in Kenya, who's talking to the Sherpa up near Mount Everest. It's fantastic. So this technology is actually really empowering people to communicate and share, to educate their children, to get access to information. So this program we started at uh, National Geographic All Roads was a celebration of the stories around the world. And I think for me, that's even more gratifying now than the photography that I'm doing is just to see this dam unleashed of remarkable storytellers around the world. And that's, that's what's very exciting. So I guess what I'm saying is pick and continue to evolve in your field. And also at one point, just realize there is a moment to turn around and start helping people come up too and mentoring them. And that's very important. Chris, and given you know, Indigenous culture as a platform to, to share their stories and, and all roads, can you recall any poignant or really surprising insights you got from any of these stories you were able to, to call so far? Well, I think probably one of the most emotional ones that I felt was many of these traditional cultures are living in countries where they are oppressed. And we can see what's unfolding in Myanmar and Burma uh, with the Tibetans, obviously in Tibet, uh, many of the indigenous groups that we're seeing in Brazil, and certainly what's going on with COVID in Brazil. So at one point, we began to have this kind of annual gathering and bring them all to the United States and, and let them communicate among each other. And so often what revealed itself was this deep emotional release, realizing you're going through that too. That's exactly what our government is doing to us. Let's, let's continue to communicate. Let's, let's figure out how we can solve this situation. And it was very powerful watching these different traditional communities for the first time realize that they weren't alone, that there were other people going through this together. And I think that's what's so remarkable, again, about connecting people and having this communication that we can share ideas. Look what's going on in Myanmar now. We would not know as much as we do if it wasn't for the technology, if it wasn't for social media. I'll just tell a little story. I remember one day at Ansel's, um, and I was sort of the, the butler, so to speak. I would always answer the front door when the doorbell rang and I opened the door and there was this long haired kind of young guy and he looked very familiar. And I was like, he's holding a box with an apple on it. And he said, hi, my name's Steven Jobs and I'd love to give Ansel Adams a computer. <laughs> so I brought him in and I can swear those conversations Stephen Jobs had, however old he was, late 20s, early 30s, certainly the scraggly long hair part of his career, that Ansel 
talk to him about cameras. I am convinced it was those conversations that we now have cameras in our smartphones because Jobs wasn't totally into photography, but you could see the light bulb going off in his head. And I always chuckle when I think of, you know, as we wander around our cities and wander around the middle of Mongolia with the Cossacks and they've got smartphones, I wonder what Stephen Jobs would think today. Just a remarkable invention that has shifted the playing field completely. A number of insightful stories demonstrating the, the value of conversation, really. And again, ironically, or I guess not so ironically, quite poignantly highlighting what's so valuable having this time with you too, Chris. I, uh, I'm curious on, on the time frame with All Roads in creating this conversation space for cultures in disparate parts all around the world to kind of feel a common family of experience whether that may have also instilled a sense of pride or perhaps value in maintaining traditional culture. We don't need to change. There's a lot for of them. us out there that don't want to. Yeah, for them. And, and did that have anything to do with some of the inspiration behind what you moved into next with some of your other work, like with cultural sanctuaries, or was it kind of a contemporaneous process? I'm just kind of seeing, trying to follow your timeline and getting you know your next project yes. started here. Well, yes. So I worked for National Geographic for sort of 18 years. Initiatives come and go. Uh, As many people know, National Geographic was bought up first by Fox Media and then by Disney. And unfortunately, what happened in that process was the nonprofit side, the educational and scientific uh, priorities shifted. We were, uh, Wade Davis and I were there at a wonderful time when we were funded. It was an important initiative, as strong as, you know, saving panda bears and and lions and, and tigers. And then things began to shift. I was also beginning to realize that not only was it important to start or to continue to kind of connect cultures, but also conservation. Climate issues were coming stronger and stronger. In uh, 2015, I was asked to go to the Paris Climate Accord, bring some indigenous elders to talk about uh, conservation and traditional knowledge. While at that conference, my partner, Olivia, and I really realized we weren't doing enough about the narrative of the importance of traditional culture as it relates to the conservation of biodiversity and forests. So we created the Cultural Sanctuaries Foundation, which is now almost six years old and and growing. And where we really work and what we really saw at Paris was traditional culture is key to the conservation of land. So I evolved out of the pure sort of documentation and empowerment of indigenous people and have evolved towards the importance of highlighting culture, traditional culture in the role of conservation. So we really work at that nexus. And there's remarkable statistics out there. United Nations has just released a huge, huge report on the the importance of supporting indigenous culture to preserve biodiversity. So where traditional cultures, let's say just, let's take the Amazon, for example, where traditional culture is empowered to preserve the rainforest, 10 square miles of preserved rainforest 
annually offsets the carbon of 350,000 cars per year. We all know it's important not to cut down the rainforest, but the key to that is supporting indigenous people and their desire to stay on the land. So what we do is really create opportunities which involved economic models as well for indigenous people to preserve their land, to preserve their ocean, their watershed systems, and not to be forced to cut it down. And this is really challenging, especially now in the time of COVID, but it is crucial to the preservation. Traditionally, national parks, again, you know, Yosemite and Yellowstone are good examples of that. Traditional Indian culture was moved off the national park. That's how Serengeti and Masai Mara uh, have operated. But now many indigenous groups, many uh, conservation groups are really realizing the success lies in incorporating indigenous people into that narrative. So we work with governments, we work with NGOs, we create a community cultural center, and that's where the all roads component comes in because there's a lot of storytelling workshops and, and seminars there where they can go out and actually do the documentation of deforestation or the poaching of animals. So it's, again, empowering the indigenous people to tell their stories, tell their local stories, and to be able to preserve the land as well. I want to maybe break down how this might work and maybe provide an example from an organization that, that I actually work for that seems to fit in this model. I worked for a group called Health and Harmony that had a healthcare model in Borneo where mm. um, the founders had recognized that the, it's one of the largest tropical rainforest lands in the world and was being decimated for palm oil industry. And, you know, we have to have a sense of compassion going into these environments that uh, we can't begrudge the indigenous population for wanting to make money in a profitable business, right? But we have to provide or uh, give options for a viable alternative. And uh, their ingenious model was there was resource scarcity for healthcare. They provided a clinic staffed by local physicians trained by Westerner physicians, which is how I got involved, that basically provided free healthcare to surrounding communities in endangered rainforest areas in exchange for free healthcare, access to free healthcare. And on addition to that, uh, free training within the schools about appropriate farming tactics, techniques, and the value of, of conservation as it relates to some of these larger systemic problems that obviously the world is worried about. And um, they got buy-in, you know, and they got buy-in and it's actually been quite successful. I imagine you have some specific examples of how sanctuaries, especially how cultural sanctuaries has, ha has done some of the same things and provide, I guess, an alternative or a financial offset, right? To give them an incentive to understand the value of what they have and what is stand to be lost, I guess. Absolutely. You know, we were in Ecuador a couple of years ago and a chief said, look, I'll, I'll stop cutting down my forest if you tell me how tomorrow I'm going to feed my family. You know, sit there with the Maasai and they'll say, look, I'm no longer a guide because COVID has shut down the tourist business how can I provide food for my family if I don't kill that lion or I don't kill that elephant? So economics drive the whole thing. Economics drive the cutting down of the forest, all of this. So if we can create ways where there are economic models that are sustainable, and I think one of the biggest revelations for us as a foundation during COVID is, well, you can't just say tourism or ecotourism or sustainable tourism. Clearly, we are going to be dealing with potential catastrophic pandemics into the future. So there has to be 
And there's no one-stop shop here. It's, it's a combination of things that work. Uh, a successful model is unfolding in our Bhutan sanctuary where the young boys, you know, they went off to the city and they're pretty disillusioned. They've come back. They want to live in their traditional community, but they had to come up with an economic model. So they started a an orchard, a flower orchard in their community, and that is sustaining them. So now the they grow these beautiful flowers, and it's a subtropical environment that they're in in Bhutan. It's beautiful. And so off to market goes these beautiful flowers once a week. So they have an economic model. Fragile as it may be, it may work. So each region has to come up with an interesting economic model. We're working in Kenya with an organization that's called Big Life Foundation on the cutting edge of preserving elephants and lions. They, they have the economic model. They hire a lot of rangers but the kids aren't getting an education and they're not getting a traditional education in the Maasai language. So it's a kind of a combination of all of those things that bring back the value of staying and living in your community. You know, sending kids off to the city to get educated sounds like a noble cause, but it's backfiring. So many kids end up living in poverty in Nairobi and Lima and Cairo. And now they're disenfranchised. Now they're angry. They've gotten an education and they're resentful. And that's where bad things happen, like Al-Qaeda. So you need to, you need to have really have a model that works, that is, works for the whole community. And it's complex. And if it, wasn't, if it was easy, we would be doing it already. I wanted to go back to all roads for one second in, in the sense that, uh, you know, Terry, your question about some of the results of all roads. One of the things that, that really struck me is when, when we have these programs and, and Rome has started the Rome Awards now, which is a program to, to do a similar type thing, a little bit, a little bit different, but, you know, trying to answer the question of who's going to be the next great storyteller and where will she come from, right? Which is what part in part what All Roads was about. And what I think is so amazing is a lot of the, the great storytellers that have now emerged from All Roads, we're seeing all over the world, right? Uh, the Rena Effendi's of the world, a, a woman from Baku, Azerbaijan, who had very little uh, voice in, in Baku. She was a woman working at a small newspaper, um, entered all roads, was just, we were blown away by her eye, her vision, her her voice. And, you know, I think now she's she's been in the Yellow Magazine and at Geo like three times, you know, she's she is on the New York Times front page. She's Washington Post, et cetera. And that's the such an incredible lasting importance of, of that program. And I think also, you know, the program at, at Rome, you know, trying to support emerging photographers and helping them, storytellers, both film and, and photo. And uh, we, we also have a, a ceremony where we bring all the winners together, and that is <laughs> directly a result of, of my learnings from you and, and All Roads. And it also was incredible just to see so many adventures, so many people that, you know, oftentimes they're out in the middle of nowhere doing what they do come together. It, it was incredible, really joyful. So 
And yeah, I think that, that sense of accomplishment and empowerment, I remember uh, one year, and I think you were actually at this dinner, Andy. Uh, we had a wonderful young South African, Black South African woman. And she had arrived from South Africa, very powerful young woman. Yeah. And she came saying, yes, am I going to get the certificate? Am I going to get this certificate? <laughs> and we, uh, well, okay, we'll make you a certificate that says National Traffic <laughs> All Roads. And finally, at the, the kind of wonderful dinner that we had, all of us, just for the winners at the end, I said, why was it so important for this certificate? Because she said, I grew up in white South Africa apartheid. The day before I was supposed to graduate 20 years ago from photography school, the white teacher came up and said, you are not going to graduate. You never will graduate because you're black. And she said, I am going to take this certificate that National Geographic gave me, and I am going back to that teacher and saying, <laughs> I graduated. And to see the tears in her eyes, it made me realize the celebration is so important and the and the empowerment and you know, no person left behind. And I, I think we had another wonderful young woman from uh, Afghanistan. So she was the first female photojournalist. She has since gone back and she's created a photojournalism workshop, seminar, school for women photojournalists in Afghanistan that get daily death threats. She was getting death threats from her family, but she continued and she's now one of the most important journalists and photojournalists in Afghanistan today. That's why we did it. Yeah. I think it's it's so important for our listeners to remember that is that sometimes our our actions, you know, we're we're not quite clear what may spin out of them. You know, what type of lasting effect they they may have. I, I recall an exhibition that that we did at 50 Crows Foundation, the foundation that I started of Dan Budnick's work documenting the, the uh, march from Selma to Montgomery and uh, a high school class from, from one of the neighborhoods there in, in San Francisco came into, into the gallery and I gave a little tour talking about different aspects of the march from Selma to Montgomery. And there was a young woman, tough African-American that looked at me and said, why, why do you get to tell us this stuff? This isn't your story. And I was like, well, you know, I, I'm hoping that we're learning together. And it is in part all of our story. It was a very important in time when so many different people of so many different races came together. And anyway, we went through the rest of the mission. And at the very end was a, a big image of King, uh, during the I Had a Speech, which was a separate essay that Dan did. But, and we had from King and all the kids the gallery was standing with the teacher watching this one young woman who had addressed me earlier and she was staring at that photo and reading that quote and uh, she turned to the teacher and i and said you need to teach me her, and walked out <laughs> and he said you know that's the first time she's ever me at all it's just amazing you know the impact that we we have sometimes and we're not really sure where it's all going to go but we have to remember that exactly and and my last book project mask uh one of the last photographs that i took for that and it was a documentation of of mask rituals around the world and it was with a wonderful 
Tlingit Indian from Alaska named Gene, and it's actually the back cover to the book. And he, he, his whole mission in life was to, to uh, go around to underprivileged Native American schools and to help reconnect uh, young Indian boys and girls to their culture. So he would wear this beautiful raven dance mask regalia and dance and tell stories. And so we met him on the beach, set up a photograph. He became comfortable. I became comfortable. We shared the, the, the act of taking photographs. And as we were um, walking back to his truck and the sun was going down, he says, you know, Chris, I talk to so many Native Americans and they have it wrong. They're trying to decolonize. Indigenous people are trying to decolonize their brains. He said, what I say to them is what I say to everybody, to white people, to all people around the world. We need to re-indigenize all of us. We all need to reconnect to nature. And I always think about that, and I love that, and, and I love his words so much that I've asked him to write a, a piece for my new book on the meaning of what sacred is to different cultures. But I love that idea of not trying to separate white and black and young and old and hashtag me too or Black Lives Matter, but to step in and let's re-indigenize all of ourselves. Let's really put our foot forward on reconnecting on who we are. You know, the older I get, I'm paid to go around the world and photograph differences, the exotic different. But the more I travel, the more the, I realize that we're actually have everything in common. We love our family, we love our children, we, we want the best for our community. And I think we need to remind ourselves to step into that as opposed to step away and look for the differences. Yeah, so many great themes you guys are, are putting together here that I, I wanted to tie together. You spoke with uh, enhancing a sense of value in traditional culture, this idea of the sacred and re-indigenizing, and then also Andy's point about the value of kind of these these micro investments, these little bits of good that you have no real sense of where that might go. I'm thinking now with all of that to someone who might be listening to this conversation, an audience of people that enjoy travel when they get the chance to travel again and to explore what role can they play to be good allies with indigenous cultures that they may interact with, travel with, see and spend time with to instill that sense of you have value, like to not yes. be part of what you've coined before this, this tsunami of mod modernity, right? That's inundating yes. all indigenous cultures throughout the world. Any little kind of best practices or, or I guess tips on how to be a good steward? Yes. Well, I think we live uh, again with um, the technology that is at our fingertips. We live at a remarkable time that any one of us can be a storyteller, you know, a simple smartphone with a pair of earphones and a halfway decent mic or an iPad. Uh, we are capable of telling good, remarkable stories that are important. I think, you know, I spent 10 years in New Guinea from about 1985 to 95. I, I had an assignment there. The first time I went, I fell in love with this remarkable Stone Age culture and systematically went back over 10 years and traveled to 
extraordinarily isolated places, documenting it for a book and eventually an exhibit. Uh, the reason I bring it up is there was one, one place that I hiked three weeks into, and as we came over the top of the lip into this valley, this kind of garden of, of Eden down below, there were a couple of elders there and they said, we knew you were coming. There were omens and there were things that told us. And he said, please, we do not want this story told. We do not want the outside world to know about this place. And it struck me, and I eventually wrote about it in the book, where, you know, all of us as travelers and explorers have a responsibility to not overrun the planet every single square inch. So there are places that you may find yourself but then you have to look yourself in the mirror and just say, maybe I shouldn't tell the rest of the world about this place. Not because you want to selfishly hoard it yourself, but you want you realize the impact of telling the story. I did a story for Outside Magazine with Tim Cahill, who was a great writer, still is for adventure writer. And he and I went into this very isolated area, we told, documented, we told the story, we went back to Outside Magazine and said, please don't give up the exact directions to where this place was. And unfortunately, they did. And from that point on, I felt so guilty that I was the culprit. We had a, a much higher responsibility. I made a pact with myself. I would never not do adventure stories. I still do them and love them, but I have more sense of responsibility of who I am bringing in on my shoulder blades that I may destroy this place. I may end up being a part of the problem and not the solution. So I guess this is a long-winded way to, to tell fellow explorers and adventurers out there, have a sense of responsibility that if you are going to journey in there, take the culture into mind, sit down with them, ask them what they want or don't want to have happen. They're humans, they, they have their own emotions. Now, many of them, of course, are living on a level that may, they may just say, we want tourism, we want as much tourism as possible. But then you need to be, one needs to be responsible of how that is done and not to kind of metaphorically build the superhighway into some of these fragile, fragile places around the planet. It brings up an image in my mind, just thinking of how you're putting this in kind of this construct and context and an opportunity for me to, to think about your other work you're doing as well. And that it's almost as if you've got this archipelago of little islands and these microcultures that have been isolated from the rest of the world. And somehow you get across in your canoe and you get to see how wonderful and unspoilt the place may be, undiluted indigenous culture. Cool. And so one response might be, don't build the bridge, <laughs> keep it out there, right? A counter argument that maybe some cynics might respond with is, look, every place in the world is going to be discovered. All these indigenous cultures are going to see the modern world. What do you do then? And perhaps the response to that is, okay, everybody's seen the little island, but let's elevate them as a beacon on a hill and say what's so wonderful about their culture that we should not dilute. And maybe that's perhaps some of the, the impetus behind some of these cultural centers that you've you've built like in Papua New Guinea. And it's interesting. It's another way to work around and kind of to sell them on the value of what they already have. So they may not be 
enticed to change, right? Because if they're surrounded by modernity, they know that you flew in at 30,000 feet having a cocktail from a magic other right. land. Like that kind of sounds exciting, but you need to help them understand you. Maybe you don't have to. I mean, there's some like in the experience that you had, they're like, well, we don't want you. <laughs> But right. uh, there, there may also be a role for us to just give them the recognition. Totally. And I think, you know, each case is unique. There's no one-stop answer. I think there are places that need to be left alone. Ultimately, it's their decision. You know, right. we have this presumption, especially about technology. Well, who are we to exploit them with the technology? Well, it's ultimately up to them. You know, before we go into any of these places, we ask permission to go. We sit down, we say, are you interested in having access to the technology? Some places say no, some places say yes. So I think engage them and kind of show the opportunity there of here are some possibilities and, and to be responsible. So many different situations. You know, again, in New Guinea, I was we went into this extraordinarily isolated place, a place they had never seen white people before. Uh, we had hiked back in three weeks. We had a series of translators. We ended up making first contact, which was a remarkable situation in a very isolated part of Irianjaya, which is the Western part of, of New Guinea. And at the very end of our couple of days stay there, I was sitting around with the kids. We had our backpacks all set. And some 30,000 feet above me was this jet streaming across the sky from Sydney or Darwin on its way to Bangkok. And for just for a second, it was like two different centuries, two different moments of human history looked at each other. They looked me in the eye. I looked them in the eye and I thought, wonder what they're thinking of. And I thought, what a profound privilege it is to be alive where there are still cultures like that. And indeed, what a privilege for all of us here at this point in the 21st century, that there are things that we can still preserve, maintain, empower. You know, the great social anthropologist, Margaret Mead, once said, her greatest fear, having been born into a polychromatic world, was that her children, in fact, all of our children and our grandchildren, will wake up one day in a monochromatic world and never know that there was anything different. I mean, we have a responsibility in our sense of adventure and storytelling to go have a great time, go to the extremes, but to look after it and to engage the culture that we're passing through their villages. You know, the idea of purpose, to me, I, I've thought about it in a lot of different ways, because not everyone is uh, ready, able, willing, what have you, to do something big, to do some out, you know, to go engage, well, to start an organization, what do you. When we created this tagline of adventure with purpose, I was thinking about that, that it doesn't require everyone to do that, that purpose and, and change can just be a very personal, solitary thing. And I think to your question, Terry, and, and to your, your points, Chris, as we venture out, whether it's you know to go skiing, to go rock climbing, camping, whatever it may be, being conscious of, of where it is that we're going and doing some research. You talked just a moment ago, Chris, that you're you're going to Iceland and you've been doing all research about, okay, if they walk over here, or, uh, oftentimes I think people just go. They're like, I 
want to get out and I want to go. Well, maybe if we, you know, take a pause, do a little bit of research and understand, you know, the importance of the place that we're going, not only to us, but to generations before and generations to come. And in that process, we have a purpose because we have intent, we have presence. And um, it's just uh, to think about in this concept of purpose, (laughs) right? Yeah. Yeah, we've We've been given this incredible gift and it's a complex gift. COVID has certainly devastated um, a huge swath of population in around the world. But as, as individuals sitting at home, staying safe, wearing our masks when appropriate, uh, we've been given a gift to hit pause. And I think we've paused long enough. All of us have said, okay, been there, done that now. But as we re-engage nature, as we go beyond that sanctuary that we've created around our house or on the beach or up the mountain, as we start engaging those trips to the mountains, the Himalayas, or to go to South America or wherever it is, let us go more lightly. Let us more go more consciously. Let us go with purpose and I think engagement with culture. I mean, for me, culture is the whole thing. That is why I love to sit around at night around the campfire and, you know, talk about the meaning of life is is the people that live in these places and the opportunity they allow us to have of realizing that the world is not our universe, but it's multiple universes. It's different ways of perceiving land and what is sacred and what is not. So I think we've been given this incredible blessing as it unfolds. And, you know, I know we're all restless, like the racehorses at the Kentucky Derby, just like, (laughs) open the gate, let's go. But let's pause a moment before we do and realize uh, the world out there that we need to be a part of um, preserving for many generations. Absolutely. And your reference to Margaret Mead reminded me of something else I think is is quite poignant to our audience. And we're, we're talking about how to be good stewards of our adventures coming ahead. Some may still be paralyzed feeling like they can't make an effective difference and mm. engage in purposeful action. But I think we've broken down that myth a little bit. But in addition to that, I'll finish with another quote from Margaret Mead, since you brought up her name, and that is, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, Absolutely. it's the only thing that ever has. And uh, and we so appreciate you joining us here to, to help us with that calling. I, I, I think so many people needed to hear your words and be inspired by your life experience. I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, we've <laughs> taken up so much of your time today, but is there anything else we've missed? Chris, I could talk to you for another hour and would love to follow up with you about some other projects, of course, but anything else you want to share with our audience as we draw to a close here? I, I always remember as a young student, a young person sort of especially looking at you know photographers for National Geographic and I thought, oh, I'll never, ever get there. And I, I just think, believe in yourself. You know, it again, short-term gains, long-term goals. It may take you a few more years, but just keep at it. If you believe in yourself, you have a story to tell. Everybody has a story to tell. There's always a new path. There's always an untrodden path that you need to tell that story. And I think that is is what I would love to leave the audience is just go for it. It's it again, as Leonard Cohen said, we're so lightly on this planet. Go enjoy it. Such a privilege to be alive. 
So a real privilege to be with you guys. Thank you so much. I, I admire what you guys are doing there at Rome and power up. All right. Well, that was awesome. Uh, I was enjoyed being an audience member on that one for you and Andy and Chris. I mean, those stories like from Steve Jobs showing up at the front door and sitting with Ronald Reagan and Ansel Adams. I mean, what a what an incredible life Chris has had in, in addition to teaching us about his journey, really moving from and into uh, activism and action around the things that really came to mean the most to him in terms of cause and, you know, working towards better outcomes in terms of the things that he cares about. For more information about Chris's work and in the ways that he does that, you can get involved with the Cultural Sanctuaries Foundation. And you can see that in this episode's show notes. You can also go to romemedia.com forward slash give where all of the links to all of the different episodes and ways that you can get involved with the causes that we talk about and effective altruism are listed and makes it easy. Yeah. And on top of that, obviously, not only is he an amazing voice for uh, cultural preservation and the preservation of uh, native indigenous languages, uh, he obviously has a wonderful eye. And I think so much of the story of Chris Rainier is his photography. So if you want to check out any of his beautiful imagery, uh, feel free to go to his uh, website as well at chrisrainier.org uh, or check him out in links through nationalgeographic.com. Uh, what an awesome episode. Thanks for the time, everybody. Uh, we'll see you on the next show. Yes, indeed. And you can find us on social media at Rome and at The Adventure Activist. You can find me on Instagram at, at CJ Rome and Terry is at C Terry Go. That's S E E. And Corey is at Corey Richards. For resources and ways to get involved, go to romemedia.com for this episode's show notes and all the other stuff. And special thanks to our producer, Healy Cruz. This episode of Rum From Home is brought to you by Adventure Activists. Adventure Activists is a nonprofit platform which produces unique stories and educational content to promote the charitable mission of the Sustainable Development Goals. They call on experts to help with storytelling around health, education, peace, justice, conservation, and climate. And that's what we're all about here on the podcast Rum From Home. Also, this podcast is brought to you by Rome Academy. Rome Academy is Rome's educational platform where you can connect with the greatest icons, adventurers, photographers, and filmmakers of our day. And they will teach you subjects, uh, everything from skiing and snowboarding to surfing, photography, adventure storytelling, how to achieve your dreams, fitness. It's all on there. It's the masterclass of the outdoors, if you will. So check that out. If you enjoy this podcast, that's how we stay in business is our membership with the Rome Academy. You can find us at romemedia.com. Real simple. Thanks for listening.